So, Joe, you were telling me about a uh, chemistry class you took? Yeah, I took chemistry. It was just last year now. It was at a co-op. Uh, and not all, that wasn't a very interesting class. Nothing really memorable happened, except for the time that I almost burned down the entire building. <laughs> uh, but that was just me being an idiot. So, I've got another science class story. We were actually dissecting oh. pigs. Oh. So, we each had our own piglet that we had to dissect. And I just remember the teacher was like, no, honey, you're doing it wrong. And she put her arms on it, and she cracked the ribs open. Oh. And I can still remember to oh this gosh. day the sound of the ribs cracking That's open, horrifying. and it was horrifying. I just have faith that everything is as God wanted it to be, mm -hmm. um, and that we're all part of his plan, and whether it's evolution or he just created us in the snap of a finger, I think that's a really good thing to keep in mind as we're talking about this topic, too, because, like you're saying, faith is is so important, and creation science is almost a secondary issue where we start debating about it and hating each other over it, mm -hmm. and it just doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. This is Shyelle Dvorak, and I'm back with the final episode of Season 2 on the Crown Insider Podcast. Today, I'm honored to introduce Dr. Michael Behe and Dr. Donald Hardy. Dr. Behe is a specialist in the field of biochemistry, an advocate for intelligent design, and a professor at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. Dr. Behe is the author of Darwin's Black Box, which came out in 1996, and his most recent work titled Darwin Devolves. Dr. Hardy is a professor of biology here at Crown College. Dr. Hardy earned his doctorate in zoology from the University of Minnesota and teaches a number of classes, including ecology, genetics, and microbiology. Dr. Behe and Dr. Hardy, welcome to the Crown Insider Podcast. Thank you both for being here. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here as well. So, Dr. Hardy, could you start by introducing yourself? How long have you been teaching at Crown? Well, actually, I started in uh, 1977. Okay. So I've just finished uh, 42 years of teaching here. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's gone by really fast, to say the least. Wow. And I understand you teach a class on intelligent design? Actually, I do not teach a class on intelligent okay. design. But we do uh, talk about intelligent design in a couple of different classes. I teach a class on evolution and origins. Okay. And in that class, we have a section where we deal with uh, alternative explanations to evolution. And intelligent design is one of the topics we go into. Okay. Then we also deal with... Uh, intelligent design also in the, my general biology class. And again, it's kind of in a unit where we're covering evolution. So we talk about alternatives to evolution, and again, that's where we basically talk about it. But I don't teach an actual class in it. Okay, okay. For our listeners who might not know, could you give maybe just a quick summary or a definition mm -hmm. of what intelligent design is? Yeah, I think I'll defer to Dr. Behe to give the... <laughs> more precise definition, but for me, when I think of intelligent design, I think of the, just the pattern and order we see in nature, hmm. and it's at, at so many different levels, that from the uh, atomic or even subatomic level, the pattern and order, and then even at the molecular level, and the cellular level, and the organismal level, and I would even say at the population level, and the ecosystem level, we just see things that, uh, to me, just seem to have a best explanation as hmm. more than just random chance events, that there seems to be an order and pattern that, to me, intelligent design seems to be a pretty satisfactory explanation. Hmm. All right. Thank you for that. And welcome, Dr. Behe. We're glad to have you on the podcast, even if we can't talk in person. <laughs> How is your summer going so far? Well, thanks for asking. It's great to be with you, even if I can't be there in person. <laughs> Summer's going great so far. Best time of the year, you know, you don't have to teach those classes. Just uh, <laughs> sit in your office and think and, you know, uh, kind of uh, do, uh, do alternative stuff. It just, it's refreshing. Yeah, so how did you get started in the field of biology originally? Well, actually, I began in chemistry. I was a chemistry major in college, and 
Uh, I went to a place called Drexel University in Philadelphia, and uh, they make the students go out and work and a job in your field of study six months out of the year. And so I, mm-hmm. I was assigned to a, a laboratory, and turns out it was a biochemistry laboratory at, at the Department of Agriculture facility near Philadelphia. And by uh, working there, I got very interested in biochemistry, and I did my PhD in biochemistry, but then I got more and more interested in organismal levels of biology when I uh, became more interested in in evolution. Hmm. Okay, was there a specific turning point in your career when you realized you wanted to talk and write about intelligent design? Yes, actually there was. I, I was, actually I grew up believing in Darwinian evolution because that's what I was taught in school, uh, but in the uh, late 1980s, which is probably uh, a little bit before your time, but in the late 1980s, I read a book called Evolution, A Theory and Crisis by an Australian medical doctor and geneticist by the name of Michael Denton. And in mm-hmm. it, he pointed out problems for Darwin's theory that I had never thought of, even though here I was a, an associate professor of biochemistry at the time and very interested in the origin of life. And his book kind of shocked me, and uh, I always assumed that somebody must know how these elegant systems that we study in biochemistry arose by Darwin's theory. But after reading that book, I went to the science library just you know, look up for myself what the evidence was. Turns out there wasn't anything. Hmm. There was there was a lot of you know nodding and you know saying yes, we know uh, how all this got together, but there was no actual experimental or even theoretical work showing how such things could occur. And so at that point, I got mad because <laughs> I thought I had been led down the garden path and. Uh, to believe something not because there was strong evidence for it, but because that's what we were supposed to believe. And that was the turning point for me. And from then on, I became interested in evolution and eventually intelligent design. Okay. And I have a question for both you and Dr. Hardy. Uh, is intelli- or is the theory of evolution being taught in those textbooks as fact? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's, uh, it is beyond question in uh, pretty much any secular uh, biology or any, any field of biology text. Well, yes, it, it's taught as fact. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. that uh, there's a famous essay by uh, Theodosius Dobshansky that says, Nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Hmm. So because of that, you know, we have to treat the, serious, treat the topic very seriously. Hmm. That's an interesting quote, too, because even evolution can't make sense of <laughs> what the world has in it. Um, but that, quote from, that quote from Dobzhansky was actually a, in a polemical article. It was not a scientific article. As a matter of fact, he was writing in a, in a journal called The American Biology Teacher, and he was, he was pushing to have evolution taught, not so much, he wasn't pointing to evidence saying nothing makes sense in the light, except in the light of evolution. He was uh, saying that, you know, I say, or I, we should teach as if, you know, nothing makes sense except in the light of evolution. So it wasn't a scientific mm-hmm. statement, it was a polemical statement. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, so, question for both of you guys. Uh, how is intelligent design different from creation science? Well, uh, I, I'll go first on that if you'd like. Um, in, my, in my estimation, uh, creation is a religious concept. It essentially says that God created something ex nihilo. And that's fine, and certainly it may be true, but it starts from uh, a religious 
idea, religious presupposition. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's where it starts. On the other hand, intelligent design starts from the empirical evidence, that is the physical evidence that we see in life. And it says why this has features that we always uh, we uh, realize are always associated with an intelligent directing mind. It has uh, these things all have sophisticated parts that work together with each other. They perform elegant functions and so on. So it, it hmm. comes from empirical data. So it's science, it's science based, not uh, not religion based. And if I could make an analogy, I'd say creation creation is to intelligent design as say the first chapter of Genesis is to the Big Bang theory. You know, both of those say that the universe had a beginning, but the first chapter of Genesis says that was a revelation that was uh, given to us. On the other hand, the Big Bang Theory says, why, look, those galaxies all are moving away from each other as if in the aftermath of a big explosion. So maybe the universe began in a, in a single moment in a big explosion. So you get to similar uh, conclusions, but starting from different premises. Hmm. Yeah, I kind of agree with what uh, Dr. B says there. That I like the idea that you come to similar conclusions, but you start a different from different starting points. So it's I I agree with him. What his decision or his uh, description is very good. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting about that is that when you say intelligent design. It's, it's also almost implicating, it has to implicate, I suppose, that there's an intelligent designer. So do you think that that's def an element of intelligent design? Yeah, intelligent design means there is an intelligent designer. When, when we see things that have been arranged, then we infer back to a mind or an intelligent being who arranged them. And it's important to realize that we do that all the time in our everyday life. When we're walking down the street, you might see you know, some trash kind of blowing here and there in the wind, or, and you might see a, you know, a, a sculpture, and you immediately realize that the sculpture was intentionally designed, it was made, the trash blowing around not, because you see in the sculpture uh, what I call a purposeful arrangement of parts. You see the parts fit to each other uh, to perform a function, to uh, get across an idea that the sculpture is supposed to represent. Uh, so, uh, uh, well, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the... Uh, the There's an intelligent designer. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, it points explicitly to a, an intelligent designer, yes. All right, so before we talk about Dr. Behe's research into molecular machines, I want to talk about some of the most common examples of intelligent design. One of them is how the eye is so complex. So it seems so unlikely that all of those components, the iris, the cornea, etc., would all evolve to form this one working part of the body. Is that still a good example of intelligent design? Well, there have been a number of... Uh alternative explanations given to the origin of the eye, such as a, a, a series of nerve, nerve endings that receive light and then they put into a, a cupped environment where they can focus light. It's still, I keep falling back to what I said earlier that when you put it all together and you see this thing functioning in a way that functions so well that Yes, it, to me it still is a good example of intelligent design. Even if we take that some of these other things could have happened, uh, I still think we see the planner executing his plan through his creation. So to me it is a, an example of intelligent design. Hmm. And Dr. Behe, what are your thoughts? Oh, uh, well, I would say that it is a magnificent example of intelligent design, and it's a great example of how 
pretty much just so stories by Darwinists uh, somehow get blown up by retelling and the media and so on as, as fact when when they're you know like I said just just so stories. The um, scenario that uh, Dr. Hardy recounted uh, where you start with a nerve that's sensitive to light and then maybe it, it, it can tell the difference between light and shade but it can't tell which direction the light has come and if it, if the area is forms into a little cup then it can start to sense the direction because one side of the retina might be in shadow and the other in light hmm. and that that scenario was actually first put forward by Charles Darwin himself in 1859 and uh, hmm. just to realize uh, what Darwin was uh, talking about back in 1859 the significance of cells wasn't really known the existence of molecules was unknown and the inner workings of the eye that sensitive nerve that Darwin kind of blithely started with, we now know, due to the progress of science itself, is enormously complex. I discussed this in my first book, Darwin's Black Box, and showed mm. that there are dozens of really complex molecular machines that are necessary for even the first step for a, uh, a light-sensitive uh, spot. And uh, in the meantime, Darwin's you know scenario of a light sensitive spot growing up to become a, a complex vertebrate eye <clears throat> is the same story that you'll get from many modern evolutionary biologists. Mm. Even though it's 150 years old, even though science has made enormous progress uh, since Darwin's day, it, uh, Darwin's science seems. Uh, extremely primitive uh, uh, compared to what we have now. So the point is that uh, the eye is a splendid example, uh, and it's also a splendid example of how propaganda can obscure uh, the design of life. Hmm. Dr. Behe, it almost sounds as if you're saying as well that... Uh, evolutionists today have not been using the advancement of science itself to look back on Darwin's theory. Do you think that that's true? Absolutely, that, that's true. Darwin's theory is now a, an assumption, a basic postulate. It's not being tested. It's essentially just, you know, evidence, new evidence that we gather is fit into Darwin's theory somehow or other, but nobody, or it's only the rare person who actually says, does Darwin's theory keep up with this? And that is despite the fact that Darwin didn't know anything about the, uh, about the um, fundamental level of life, which is the cellular and molecular level. That was utterly unknown. He didn't know how uh, genetic information, how uh, um, how uh, traits were passed down from parent to child across the generations. Nobody knew about DNA uh, back then. But yet, despite all the enormous change and, and the enormous increase in our understanding, nobody still can explain how Darwin's theory might account for some real complex transition. It's always these little stories like uh, how the light-sensitive spot grew up to be a vertebrate eye. Hmm. What I've noticed, too, is that uh, it seems like we're often talking about worldview issues in the sense that uh, evolution supports a worldview issue of just pure naturalism, that nature is all there is. So you have to somehow come up with a purely natural explanation for everything. So it seems like a lot of the explanations that evolutionists come up with are just trying to support that worldview rather than trying to look at the, the science behind it. Hmm. So, yeah, so those, you can think of them, and it's important to realize then that those conclusions are 
philosophical ones. They're not based on the evidence. They're uh, based on prior uh, philosophical uh, assumptions, and that's not how science is supposed to work. That's fascinating. Uh, another example of this, and this isn't directly related to biology, but it still points to intelligent design of the universe. It actually comes from a book called Miracles by Eric Metaxas. In the book, he mentions how the moon is the exact distance from the earth, and the earth is the exact distance from the sun to support life. Uh, here's a quote from him. It says, quote, I found the precision necessary uh, for all of this unbelievable. The more I thought about it, the more I knew that there was no way this could be a mere coincidence. It seemed almost planned. In fact, it seemed utterly planned, as all things of such precision must be. End quote. So, Dr. Hardy, do you think that all precision is planned? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> because it either could be planned or a result of a plan, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, but this is an issue where how do we deal with precision or what do I call order and design? Because the example you gave uh, kind of talks about, oh, in science they often are referred to as the anthropic principle. Why do conditions on Earth seem to be just right? Or I like to call it in class the Goldilocks principle. You know, <laughs> We're not too warm, we're not too cold, we're not too far away from the sun, we're not too near the sun. And, when you look at all these factors that come together, it would appear that we do live in a precisely ordered location in the universe to support life. And so what's the explanation for that is what kind of begs the question. Mm -hmm. And so is it a result of chance or is this again a result that seems to indicate a broader plan within it? And I, I don't, I have to confess my ignorance here, but there was an, a famous astronomer, it may have been Carl Hubble, but when he was asked about this apparent design and this order and the fact that the earth is just the way it is and some of the things you mentioned, he used a phrase something like this. He said, it's a put-up job. In other words, it, it looks like someone did it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, that, that was uh, Fred Hoyle. Did you say that? that was I, I, thank you. I, I thought it was Hubble, but I think you're right. I think it's Hoyle. <laughs> uh, yeah, if I, I could jump in, uh, something of interest to note is that back in Darwin's day, astronomers and physicists thought that the word world in the universe was kind of bland. It was really kind of boring, you know, and um, they expected that life would be widespread on uh, other planets, including Mars and Jupiter, even the moon. And uh, that idea, and they expected it on Darwinian principles. They thought, well, the Earth isn't much of a much, and hey, life evolved here, so it can't be that hard. It's only with the progress of science, as people thought more and more about what it takes to sustain life, and more and more we discovered what life is, especially at its foundational level, that we said, wait a, wait a second, it turns out it's enormously improbable to get a planet like our own. Not only the location, where we're just the right distance from the sun and uh, have a moon to protect us from asteroids and meteors and, and, a, uh, and, a, and, a, um, and the Van Allen radiation belt uh, to uh, fend off uh, cosmic rays and other things that would otherwise fry us. But it's the laws of nature themselves. If the uh, charge on the electron was a little bit different, if the uh, strength of gravity was a little bit greater or lesser, we would be toast, and there would be no life uh, in the universe. And it's not only the laws of nature, it's kind of the results of the laws of nature. If, if carbon did not have the properties it did, then, again, no life would be possible. If water didn't expand on freezing, then Earth would probably be a, a frozen planet because uh, ice floats, and that insulates the rest of the water from freezing. These things are called the anthropic principle or anthropic coincidences. And the bottom line, the interesting thing, is that uh, 
many people say, well, science, you know, is pushing back religion, but it's actually, that's propaganda. <laughs> it's happened. actually the opposite. The more and more science knows about the universe or discovers about it, the more and more we see that uh, something outside of the universe itself uh, is required to explain how it is set up. So rather than challenging religion, it's giving a, <laughs> it's giving a better and better basis for thinking that uh, all of this was, in fact, purposely made. Hmm. Well, again, that's not my area of expertise in talking about multiverse, but the idea is that we are just one of countless almost infinity numbers of universes and that we're just one example of that and that and I think it's the attempt to try to explain that life must be inevitable someplace else besides here because what other alternative is there <laughs> mm. so there has been a, it's interesting how they develop a number of theories which are just uh, well, mathematical theories on how it's possible that these different universes could exist, but we still have to say, where's the evidence for that? It just seems to be a philosophical view rather than anything based on science, even though there are a number of astronomers who, who deal with the concept of a multiverse or multiverse universes trying to explain. And even we see that even in the news frequently of a uh, well, we see uh, new Earth-type planets, you know, a, a new exoplanet discovered in such and such a system. And it's always with the idea, well, maybe life occurs there. But it's interesting that uh, when the program called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, they've been having their radio uh, telescopes pointed out in space for a number of years now, looking for different patterns of radio signals that would indicate a sign of intelligence. Uh, we haven't found anything yet. <laughs> so I'd say the same thing with multiverses. There's just, it's a fun idea to speculate on, but there's, mm. where's the evidence? Where's mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I once thought that uh, life could appear spontaneously uh, on the earth because life didn't appear so complex. You know, insects were thought to be pretty simple. Certainly, uh, yeast and single cells were thought to be simple, so maybe they could just arise spontaneously. But then when the complexity of cells were looked at, they said, well, you know, hey, uh, well, maybe uh, on other planets there might be uh, life arising too. So mm. then we looked at other planets, there was nothing there. Uh, and uh, as Dr. Uh, Hardy mentioned, there's this program to search for uh, radio signals from space aliens uh, called SETI, and that's been operating for 50 years or, or more, and they have come up with, with zero. And so people say, well, yeah, um, maybe there's not only our universe, but hey, maybe there's other universes too. And a, a huge motivation is to escape the idea of a designer, to escape the idea of, of God behind uh, nature. And mm -hmm. while uh, Dr. Hardy said there's no evidence for that other than a few, you know, scratches of equations on a paper, nonetheless that idea is starting to seep into society. If you have seen uh, what, what was called Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and, and other such movies. It was a good movie, but <laughs> the idea that we are just one of an infinite number of universes, although it has no hmm. evidence to support it, is put forward uh, trying to fend off uh, the idea of design. Hmm. That's very interesting. Uh now, I'd like to ask you, Dr. Behe, about an example you use in your book, Darwin Devolves. Uh, there's a very interesting picture of a creature called the plant hopper. Uh, as you know, it's the only insect in all of nature with mechanical gears, which you can only see in extreme close-up. So, uh, Darwin would never have known about them. Why are they so important to intelligent design? 
Well, they're, they're uh, just one of tons and tons of examples of what is called the purposeful arrangement of parts. Uh, that is, parts that are put together to accomplish a function, to do something. And, you know, examples from our everyday world are something as simple as a mousetrap where there's a number of parts and the mousetrap can snap and catch a mouse. Um, and, and the point is that whenever we see these things, realize that there's a mind behind them, that they were designed. You, know, you can't look at a mousetrap and think that it just luckily got to where it was. You realize that it was intentionally arranged that way. And these plant hopper gears, uh, it's very interesting, they were only discovered you know, a year or two ago. Uh, we probably thought that we knew pretty much everything about insect anatomy, but it turns out that this insect, the plant hopper, has intermeshing gears so that when one leg starts to spring, the other one is engaged and they both go at the same time. And if it didn't, then the plant hopper might spin out of control and, and uh, not be the not be the champion jumper uh, that it is. And it, it's important. The neat thing about it was that you know this was really in your face. They have clear pictures of what what is just interacting mechanical gears. And I think the force of it is just that everybody can recognize the design in it straight away. And the uh, internet lit up with uh, lots of theological discussion, you know, in the weeks and month or so after it uh, was discovered, but then people kind of, you know, it kind of quieted down and not be, people don't uh, think about it much anymore. But those, those gears are fascinating. But what's really interesting is that in the cell, there are molecular machines, real machines, that whose complexity you know is light years beyond that. And and yet, uh, I think it's just the image, the picture that people can see. Uh, they can grasp it more easily than uh, than more complicated things in the cell. So, Dr. Behe, when you mention molecular machines, uh, what do you mean by that? What are those? Well, uh, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I, I imagine many of your listeners have seen uh, the TV show called Star Trek, and uh, <laughs> in some uh, in some uh, of the series, there are these folks called the Borg, which are kind of half humanoid, half machine type creatures, and they're they're relentless, and they will. Uh, they can't be stopped and so on, but they are run, uh, it says so in the, in the series, they're run on nanotechnology. There's little machines in them that uh, run, help to run them. Well, it turns out that you and I are the Borg in that sense. <laughs> in that we have literal machines in our cells that run it that are responsible for doing the day-to-day -day activities you know they're not made out of metal and plastic like our everyday machines but they're made out of uh you know parts that uh, are precisely arranged with each other that use energy to do specific tasks they're they're machines uh, a good one I, I always talk about is the bacterial flagellum uh it's kind of a uh, is kind of identified with the intelligent design movement. It's, it's literally an outboard motor that bacteria use to swim. And just like an outboard motor in our everyday world, it's got a propeller, it's got a motor, it's got clamps that attach it to the membrane of the cell just as uh, an outboard motor has to be clamped onto the rear of the boat while it's spinning. And it's got all sorts of mechanical features. And, and that's not the only thing. There are literally little trucks and buses in our cells that ferry supplies from one end of a cell to another. Uh, wow. In, in <laughs> eukaryotic cells, cells with nuclei, that, that's what you and I have, uh, there's a bunch of different compartments. And so 
when materials are made, they have to be sent to the correct compartment. If they're sent to the incorrect compartment, that is a recipe for big trouble. And there are literally trucks that are stuffed with supplies and which move along highways made of molecules. And there are molecular signposts which tell the trucks to turn right or turn left. And when they get to their goal, there are signals that allow them to dump the supplies into the correct compartment. And there are unloading proteins that take the materials off of the trucks. It's really crazy. <laughs> wow. And it, I know it sounds complicated, but that's just, you know, a, 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 a brief description of the complexity. Uh, so yeah, you and you and I, we're the Borg. So I, I guess we can be you know, proud of that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Thanks, Dr. Behe. As you're sharing that, Dr. Hardy, a question for you first. Um, why do you think evolutionary biologists are not willing to accept that we know so much more about the complexity of the human body now than ever before? I think it just goes back to the worldview issue that you have to accept all the premises that go with your worldview, and so you just don't look at the evidence like you did or could, because if it doesn't fit your worldview, then it, there must be something that there's some inconsistency there. And hmm. uh, so it seemed like there's an unwillingness hmm. to do so. And uh, unfortunately, I think it seems to be a, a little bit of dishonesty at some point. But on the other hand, it just, it's just, a, I don't know, when we're challenged by things that don't fit our worldview, we're always put at a point where we maybe we just don't know what to do at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we fall back on our old premises and what we believed in the past. And uh, unfortunately, that doesn't take us anywhere. Hmm. What's interesting, too, is this is a quote from Darwin Devolves. It's, quote, in the, only in the past 20 years have such detailed, rigorous evolutionary studies even begun to be conducted. We are in a much stronger position to test Darwin's theories, end quote. So now that we know the strict limits on biological change, why are evolutionists just getting around now to uh, doing these rigorous studies? Well, um, let me just explain that. It's only been in 20 years because to test Darwin's theory, you have to test what are the changes, what are the mutations that are happening in organisms which are being selected by natural selection. Remember back in his day, Darwin didn't know about DNA. They barely knew much about the cell. They didn't know how heredity worked. Now we do. Uh, now we know that, in fact, mutations are changes in molecules. They're changes in DNA and the proteins that they code for. And so in order to test Darwin's theory, you have to see what those changes are that are being uh, selected. And that's hard to do. <laughs> and before, about 20, 25 years ago, uh, we simply didn't have the technology to, uh, to discern with the uh, with the needed precision and the needed amount, what changes uh, are being selected by evolution, what uh, molecular changes. But, but now we do, and so the, the reason we're just getting around to these rigorous studies now is that we had to await the invention of the necessary technology. Hmm. And is it true, too, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Dr. Hardy, but is it true that now, being able to see those molecular changes, there is quite a difference as well between macroevolution and microevolution, that it's not that we see changes happening that animals are actually, we see different kinds changing into different kinds, but that it's on a smaller, uh, a micro scale. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Hardy? Because I've heard quite a few people um, mention that to me. Well, taking off some of the points that Dr. B was talking about, that when there is mutation, in most cases, probably 99% of the cases, it's, it's harmful. 
but there can be a few cases where it might derive some type of benefit. But the limitation of what mutation can, can do seems to indeed be quite limited. So when we do talk about microevolution, in essence, it's variation within a kind, within a type, within the species. I think we can demonstrate that pretty well. I, don't, I think that would be a, a, a strong point of, of Darwin's view in that sense that as he's trying to explain uh, differences among organisms and through artificial selection and this process of natural selection, we do see natural selection operating at that level. I think we could demonstrate that in the, from antibiotic resistance in bacteria to, Adaptation. you know, all, yeah, and to even though uh, Darwin's examples of all the, his uh, finches, uh, we see a great example of what we could call microevolution or horizontal evolution. And I really don't have a main problem with that. I think that's an event that does uh, occur, but it's when we start talking about the alteration of well, from fish to amphibians, amphibians to reptiles, or even the origin of, of vertebrates themselves from the invertebrates. There's just, mm. there's gaps, there's mm -hmm. leaps that we have to make to, uh, to explain those things. But at the other, at the level of within species and within the variation within a particular kinds, uh, for example, how to explain all the different kinds of a, of a, Oh, I was thinking of birds like our, uh, our warblers. They're, they often look so similar, very difficult to identify them as being different. But they are different species. But when you look at the process of uh, variation within kind and over time as uh, variation can lead to accumulation of differences that they don't interbreed anymore. And, uh, but what the birds have evolved into are just another type of bird. So that horizontal or microevolution, I don't have any major problems with. And I think often we talk about in the pro and the concept of evolution, we have to kind of keep those two things separate. Hmm. But often when, we're, when we do talk about evolution, we, they're all wrapped together, and that's why it's diff sometimes difficult to hear an evolution say, well, we have great evidence for evolution, when it's really it's the microevolution, the stolid evidence is in support of, but it's in the large-scale evolutionary change that it's much more difficult. And for the sake of time here, uh, I'm going to move into the next segment. And this is a question for Dr. Behe. You have been on the forefront of the intelligent design movement. What have been some of the benefits and costs? And has it caused a lot of stress? Well, uh, the benefit is, of course, that I get to argue for what is true, <laughs> what is correct. As far you know, as as uh, as I see it, you know, you don't get into academia, uh, you don't get into research to toe a party line. You want to uh, find out how the world works, what what's really going on. And I got into this business, you know, over twenty years ago, and it's it's strange, you know. I'm just some uh, some. Uh, uh, Shlemiel from a, 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 a little college, you know, I, you, know I, you know, I know a few things, but uh, compared to many folks in science, you know, I'm, I'm certainly nothing special, and yet these things are utterly obvious, and even a person like me can write a book pointing these out, and over 20 years later, uh, in my humble opinion, nobody has been able to... to uh, uh, counter any of the claims that I made in Darwin's Black Box. And my new book uh, has been out a few months, uh, Darwin Devolves, and mm -hmm. it's been ripped, ripped into by big names in the science community and in prominent journals, and yet the criticisms are all about uh, extraneous things, uh, not the main point of the book. They, they simply can't answer these arguments. And that's a lot of fun. <laughs> that's a lot of fun. And also, when you uh, when you argue for this, there's a lot of people who know, who intuit on a on a more fundamental level that yeah, the, the world is designed, and, and this uh, contention that it comes about by accident is you know is baloney. But you know they feel personally unable to counter it, and and they you know they like me. 
those folks like me. <laughs> and so that's nice. But, of course, mm. uh, the other side of the coin is that uh, folks in academia, where, of course, I work, uh, lots of them hate this. I mean, they hate it with a burning passion. And so, you know, you get um, somewhat unfriendly comments from uh, from colleagues and, and other folks in the field. And so that's unpleasant. Uh, but hey, you know, nobody ever promised me a rose garden. So uh, you put up with those, and I, I will continue about this and pointing these things out until somebody shows me that I'm wrong. And I have only grown much, much more confident over the decades uh, of the correctness of, of intelligent design. So I don't expect that uh, to happen. Hmm. And Dr. Hardy, uh, do you have very many peers that do not view intelligent design as a valid scientific option? Well, I would have to say because I work here at Crown and uh, I've been here long enough that I would say the majority of my colleagues are probably supporters of intelligent design. Hmm. So we don't have the the rigorous arguments that Dr. Behe would have with his colleagues. Uh, maybe some disagreement on uh, some minor points, but for the most part, in my career here at Crown, I think there's been a, a warmth and an understanding of intelligent design because it kind of fits with our Christian worldview. So mm. we don't have a lot of, a lot of conflict with it. Hmm. And so Dr. Behe, I'm really curious uh, what is it like to write a well-known book but not be able to talk about it in class? Oh, <laughs> uh, it's okay. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I prefer to uh, mention it, of course, especially when it's uh, germane to the biochemistry that I'm talking about in the class. But my colleagues don't like that, and they get... You know, they, they themselves get criticisms from alumni and, and parents of students who don't want their kids exposed to this claptrap. Uh, so, uh, so I don't speak about it in class, but uh, that's okay. My, so my purpose in getting into this discussion was not just to change the minds of a few students who happened to be in my class some particular semester, although I'd love to do that too. Rather, it was to change the whole debate in the academic community writ large and, and in the world of ideas too. Uh, and I'm happy to put up with a few restrictions because I, I think that uh, the intelligent design uh, movement and the intelligent design argument is, in fact, uh, having an effect uh, in the wider world. Hmm. So another question for both of you, to the younger scientists out there, say someone in high school, let's say they want to embark on a career as a scientist who studies intelligent design. What, is, what advice do you have for them getting started? Uh, other than, let's say, wear a suit of armor. <laughs> so Dr. Hardy, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, first and foremost, I'd say you have to be excellent in what you do. To have credibility in, with your colleagues, you have to be good at what you do. So that would be my first advice. Be very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Dr. Behe, what, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I, I would make sure that that armor is extra thick, uh, tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, my, uh, I would... Uh, I would uh, echo Dr. Hardy's uh, advice. The, the, the thing that you have to do first is become excellent in your field of study. If you aren't excellent, nobody's going to listen to you anyway. Uh, there's a lot of smart folks in science already. There's a lot of smart folks who are coming up with different points of view. So if you don't study real hard and work real hard, you won't have a, a really a strong voice. My advice, my strong advice is to keep your head down uh, until you are in a secure uh, position uh, professionally because it's real easy to 
to take measures against a, uh, a graduate student or a postdoctoral fellow or, or somebody who doesn't have tenure, right? In my uh, travels, I've seen a, a number of intelligent design proponents you know, kicked out of laboratories, fired from jobs, uh, hmm. removed from positions of responsibility. Uh, so you've got to be, you know, what, what they say, wise as serpents. You can't just broadcast hmm. this. And you should also know one last point is that you don't have to explicitly come out and you know, uh, debate intelligent design evolution like like I do. Uh, almost all the work I talk about has been done by other people, uh, and it's the progress of science itself in unveiling this you know astounding complexity and elegance at the basis of life that is pointing so strongly to design. So, if these uh, if these up and coming scientists. Uh, want to help the case for design, why that's as simple as being good scientists and, and showing us uh, how nature works because uh, that's that's what it, ultimately the argument is based on. Hmm. Thank you, Dr. Behe. Thank you both so much for being on this podcast. Uh, I'd like to quote a verse from Romans 12. This is Romans 12, 18, which says, Quote, as far as it is in our power, we should make peace with all men, end quote. And I think that is so important to all of us to remember that we're not just here trying to win arguments, but we're trying to explore this topic and find the truth. And that can be very hard to do, but it's also very important. And so uh, thank you to both of you guys who are um, working passionately in the areas that you're interested in and and coming up with this research for us to learn from. We just really appreciate it a lot. So thank you both for being here on the Crown Insider Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's, it's been a lot, of, a lot of fun. Thank you.